This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 32, for broadcast on the 26th of April, 2019. Coming up on Space Time, going beyond Einstein and the black hole singularity, we take a look at loop quantum gravity. Evidence shows meteoroid strikes ejecting precious water from the moon, and Boeing delays the first space test flight of its new CST-100 Starliner capsule. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Physicists have reached beyond Albert Einstein to develop new equations hypothesizing that singularities don't exist inside black holes. When stars collapse, they create black holes, which are everywhere throughout the universe and therefore important to be studied. Black holes are mysterious objects with an outer edge called an event horizon, which traps everything, including light. Einstein's theory of general relativity predicted that once an object falls inside an event horizon, it ends up at the center of the black hole, a region called the singularity, where it's completely crushed and destroyed, never again to enter our universe. At this point of singularity, gravitational attraction becomes infinite, and all the known laws of physics break down, including Albert Einstein's. Although they've had little success until now, there's a cohort of theoretical physicists who have been questioning if singularities really exist. They've developed complex mathematical equations over the past few decades, but they've really not amounted to anything serious. Now, Associate Professor Parampret Singh and colleagues from Louisiana State University have developed new mathematical equations which they claim go beyond Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity overcoming its key limitation, the central singularity of a black hole. Their work's been reported in the journals Physical Review Letters and Physical Review D. Now, if you were a fan of space-time's predecessor star stuff back in the 1990s, you'll remember our tutorial on loop quantum gravity. Theoretical physicists develop loop quantum gravity as a means of trying to marry the laws of quantum mechanics, which explains the physics of the very small, with relativity theory, which explains gravity and the dynamics of space and time on the cosmological scale. The new equations attempt to describe black holes in loop quantum gravity, in the process showing that black hole singularities need not exist. Singh says that in Einstein's theory, space-time is a sort of fabric of the universe, which can be divided up as small as one wants. He says this is essentially the cause of the singularity where the gravitational field becomes infinite. However, in loop quantum gravity, the fabric of space-time has a more tile-like structure, which cannot be divided beyond the smallest tile. Singh and colleagues believe they've now shown this is the case inside a black hole, and therefore there can be no singularity. However, in loop quantum gravity, the fabric of space-time has a tile-like structure which cannot be divided beyond the smallest tile. In other words, there's a set minimum scale. Singh and colleagues claim they've now shown this is the case inside black holes, and therefore there can be no singularities. According to their interpretation of loop quantum gravity, instead of a singularity, there's a funnel to another branch of space-time. These tile-like units of geometry called quantum excitations, and which Singh and colleagues believe resolves the singularity problem, are orders of magnitude smaller than can be detected with today's best technology. But the authors insist their mathematical equations can still predict their behaviour. 
Singh says Louisiana State University has been developing state-of-the-art computational techniques in order to extract physical consequences from these physical equations using supercomputers, in the process bringing science closer to reliably testing loop quantum gravity. He believes Einstein's theories fail not only at the centre of black holes, but also to explain how the universe was created from the Big Bang singularity. In fact, a decade ago, he and some colleagues began extending physics beyond the Big Bang in order to make new predictions using loop quantum gravity. Using the mathematical equations and computational techniques of loop quantum gravity as they've developed it, they've predicted that the Big Bang is in fact replaced by a big bounce. All they need to do now is prove it. So, what exactly is loop quantum gravity? Since the 1980s, M-theory, better known as string theory, has been, as we've already pointed out, the favoured model for unifying Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, which explains the physics of gravity on the cosmic scale, with quantum mechanics and later quantum field theory, which explains physics at the subatomic level. The problem is, these two theories are incompatible. In other words, one theory loses its predictive power whenever the other theory comes into play. And that's where string theory comes into play. Its basic premise is that the most fundamental particles in nature aren't point-like, but rather more like vibrating strings. So, when you look inside an atom, for example, you'll find it's made up of protons, neutrons and electrons. And when you look inside, well, say, a proton or a neutron, you'll find these elemental particles called quarks. And then when you look inside one of these elemental particles, be they a quark or a neutrino or a photon or an electron, you'll find these vibrating strings of energy. Strings vibrating at one frequency might form an electron. Vibrating at a slightly different frequency will see them form a photon. And at yet another frequency, they could form a type of quark or neutrino. However, for string theory to work, the four-dimensional space-time universe we understand around us actually needs at least six extra dimensions. Now, we don't see these extra dimensions because, according to theorists, they're extremely compact and tightly curled up. Physicists working on different versions of string theory have come up with different additional dimensions. Some have 6, others 10, some have 11, others 13. There are even 21 and 23 dimensional universes, according to which version of superstring theory you believe is valid. Now, all of these are different manifestations of an underlying theory called M-theory. M-theory suggests that the three space dimensions of our universe are actually simply on the surface of a membrane, that's the M, which exists in another dimension. And there are other membranes floating around nearby in the multiverse. Now, when two of these membranes come into contact with each other, that causes a singularity, such as that at the centre of a black hole or at the start of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Now, if all this is getting a bit too much for you, well, there's a helping hand in the form of an alternative theory called loop quantum gravity. Loop quantum gravity is elegantly simple. It works on the existing four dimensions of space-time, which we already know, so there's no need for any messy additional unseen dimensions. Instead of the basic principles of our universe being vibrating strings, as string theory predicts, loop quantum gravity says the basic structure of space-time is made up of tiny loops, just 10 to the minus 33 of a centimetre in length. Now, to put that in perspective, that is a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimetre. This size is referred to as Planck length, the scale at which classical ideas about gravity and space-time cease to be valid and quantum effects dominate. 
It's the smallest possible measurement of length with any meaning, and is about 10 to the minus 22 times smaller than a proton. Planck time is the time it takes a photon, travelling at the speed of light, to cross a distance equal to Planck length. And it's the smallest measurement of time that has any meaning, and is about 10 to the minus 43 seconds. It's also the exact time it took for the universe to come into existence. Now, according to loop quantum gravity, space-time is made up of a matrix of these tiny loops, a bit like bubbles of soap, interestingly reflecting the cosmic web honeycomb-like structure of the universe on the grandest scales. But what it also means is that the very basic structure of the universe works on volume rather than specific particles of matter or force. It's an alternative theory, and one which has gained lots of popularity. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. Scientists have discovered that streams of meteoroids striking the lunar surface are blasting a thin shower of water vapour into the Moon's exosphere, its tenuous atmosphere. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Geoscience, will help scientists better understand the history of lunar water, which is considered an important potential resource for sustaining long-term human operations on the Moon and for future deep space human missions to Mars and beyond. That's because water can be broken down into hydrogen and oxygen, which can be used as rocket fuel and can also be used for breathing and, of course, drinking. Models had been predicting that meteoroid impacts could release water from the Moon's regolith as a vapour, but scientists hadn't actually observed this phenomenon until now. All that changed when researchers with NASA and the Johns Hopkins University observed dozens of these events in data collected by NASA's Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, or LATI spacecraft. The mission orbited the Moon from October 2013 through to April 2014, gathering detailed information about the structure and composition of the lunar atmosphere, or more correctly, its exosphere, a faint envelope of rarefied gases around the Moon. There's lots of evidence now showing the Moon does have water, both in the regular form we all know as H2O, and also in another form called hydroxyls, or OH, a more reactive relative of H2O. Lunar scientists often use the term water to refer both to H2O and OH. Now, the Moon doesn't have significant amounts of water in its atmosphere most of the time, but when the Moon passes through one of these meteoroid streams, enough vapour can be ejected for scientists to detect it. And then, when the event's over, the H2O and OH readings went away again. Now, to release lunar water, meteoroids would need to penetrate at least 3.8 centimetres below the lunar surface. That's because the very top layer of the lunar surface is bone dry. But underneath there's a thin transition layer and then a hydrated layer, where water molecules likely stick to bits of soil and rock, a material scientists refer to as regolith. From the measurements of water in the exosphere, scientists have calculated that this hydrated layer of the lunar surface probably has a water concentration of about 200 to 500 parts per million. Now, that's only about 0.02 to 0.05% by weight. This concentration's much drier than the driest soils ever found on Earth, but the level is consistent with earlier lunar studies. In fact, it's so dry, you'd need to process more than a metric ton of regolith in order to collect just 500 grams of water. Now, because the material on the lunar surface is really fluffy, even a meteoroid just a few millimetres across can penetrate deep enough to release a puff of vapour. And with each impact, a small shock wave fans out through the lunar soil, ejecting tiny vapours of water from the surrounding area. When a stream of meteoroids rains down onto the lunar surface, the liberated water will enter the exosphere and spread through it, where it can then be detected. 
about two-thirds of all this water vapour than the gases into space. But there's still probably about a third that lands back onto the surface of the Moon. These findings could also help explain the deposits of ice seen in coal traps in the dark reaches of craters near the lunar poles. The floor of these lunar craters are in perpetual shadow and never exposed to direct sunlight. In fact, most known water on the Moon is located in these cold traps, where temperatures are so low that water vapour and other volatiles that encounter the surface will remain stable there for very long periods of time, perhaps even up to several billion years. The meteoroid strikes can transport water both into and out of these cold traps. Interestingly, the authors have ruled out the possibility that all of the water detected on the lunar surface comes from the meteoroids themselves. That's because the mass of the water being released is far greater than the water mass within the meteoroids coming in. Their analysis also indicates that the meteoroids' impact releases water faster than it can be produced from reactions that occur when the solar wind hits the lunar surface. That happens when hydrogen ions slam into silicates on the lunar surface, binding to oxygen atoms in the silicates and producing the OH hydroxyls. The study's lead author, Mehdi Benner from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland and the University of Maryland, believes the water being lost is truly ancient, either dating back to the formation of the moon itself or else deposited very early on in lunar history. What we discovered is that the surface releases its water when uh, the moon is bombarded by micrometeoroids. This is especially noticeable during meteor showers. What we also found is that the surface that's releasing the water is being protected by a layer of few centimeters of dry soil that can only be breached by large micrometeoroids. When a micrometeoroids impact the surface of the moon, most of the material in the crater is vaporized. There is also a shock wave that propagates outward. That shock wave carries enough energy to release the water that's coating the grains of the soil. Most of that water will get released into space, and that's the signature that LADI detects with its instrument from its orbit. By analyzing the data returned by the neutral mass spectrometer, we found that the intensity and the frequencies of the fluctuations of signals from the water to be perfectly correlated with known meteor streams. For example, we were able to detect a big spike of water during the Geminid meteor shower that occurred in December of 2013. That's Mehdi Benner from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Boeing has pushed back the launch date for its first test flight for its new crew transfer capsule, the CST-100 Starliner. The spacecraft was to fly this month on an unmanned mission to the International Space Station. However, Boeing officials say the launch will now not take place before August at the earliest. NASA's blaming the delay on what it describes as limited launch opportunities in April and May from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. But the Starliner is not ready for flight yet. It's still in the final phase of ground tests. And NASA admits the August launch target is still just a working date, yet to be confirmed. The Starliner, together with SpaceX's new Crew Dragon 2 spacecraft, are being developed as part of NASA's commercial crew development program in order to have private companies handle the mundane day-to-day crew transfer operations to and from the International Space Station, thereby allowing NASA to focus more on deep space missions. SpaceX's new Crew Dragon 2 capsule undertook its successful unmanned test flight to the orbiting outpost on a Falcon 9 rocket back in March. 
The Hawthorne, California-based company is now planning to launch their first manned test flight in August, with regular crew transfer duties between Earth and the space station likely to begin before the end of the year. But while the Dragon flies on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, the CST-100 Starliner will fly atop a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket, although it is designed to also be compatible with the Falcon 9, as well as the Delta IV and the new Vulcan rocket, which will ultimately replace both Atlas and Delta launch vehicles from 2021. Both Starliner and the Dragon 2 are reusable capsules, and each are large enough to carry up to seven crew members. However, there are differences. The Dragon 2 returns to Earth by splashdown at sea, in line with earlier Mercury, Gemini and Apollo capsules or Starliner will touch down on land, just like the Russian Soyuz capsule it'll be replacing. If the CST-100 Starliner's unmanned test flight goes well, the capsule's next flight, probably before the end of the year, will have three astronauts on board, bound for the International Space Station, NASA's Nicole Mann and Mike Fink, along with Chris Ferguson from Boeing. A Northrop Grumman Antares rocket is blasted into orbit, carrying a Cygnus cargo ship loaded with fresh supplies bound for the International Space Station. The CRS-11 mission was launched from NASA's Wallops Island flight facility on the Virginian mid-Atlantic coast. Five, four, three, two, one, and we have engine ignition. And we have liftoff of the Antares NG-11 mission to the ISS. Engines at full power. Attitude is nominal. Poor pressurization looks good. Power systems look good. Stable operation, full power, both engines. TVC is nominal. Everything looking good during this first stage burn. It burns for 3 minutes, 35 seconds. Throttling back to 55% power. Nominal operation at 55% power. Throttling back up to full power. Engines are back to full power. TPC remains nominal. Altitude passes 25,000 feet. Pass through transonic. Engines continue to operate at full power. Everything looking good. About 10 more seconds of this first stage burn. Nominal attitude. Pass through 40,000 feet altitude. Fuel pressurization is nominal. VNG3 is on. Altitude past 60,000 feet. Engines remain nominal. Attitude and power systems all look good. Coming up on T plus uh, two minutes. TVC steering, power systems. Two minutes into the flight, one minutes, 30 seconds until this uh, main engine cutoff. Passing through 100,000 feet. Core pressures look nominal. Avionics power is good. We're starting our slow throttle ramp for G limiting. 200,000 feet altitude as we approach T plus three minutes. 10,000 feet per second. Engines have throttled back to 55. About 30 more seconds of this burn. Main engine will cut off. Stage one will separate. And and the vehicle will coast for just a bit before fairing separation. Engine operation at 55% power is nominal. TVC slew for main engine cutoff has started. Altitude 300,000 feet. And we have main engine cutoff. Attitude remains nominal post shutdown. Stage one separation. Attitude and power continue to look good. And we have Cygnus spacecraft separation. And Terry's is reorienting for the collision and contamination avoidance maneuver. Insertion orbit looks nominal. The Cygnus was carrying some 3,450 kilograms of scientific supplies and equipment bound for the orbiting outpost. Included in the manifest are experiments to study the growth, microscopic dynamics and restructuring processes occurring in colloidal crystals, glasses and gels. Colloidal system interactions vary with temperature and undergo a variety of transitions including crystallization and glass formation. Conducting the study in microgravity removes the effects of gravitational stresses. Also aboard Cygnus is a new bioanalyzer instrument from the Canadian Space Agency destined for use in life sciences studies. It's designed to study individual molecules on the surface of cells. 
Another experiment will examine issues of accelerated ageing in the cardiovascular systems of astronauts on station. It'll focus on carotid artery ageing, bone metabolism and blood biomarkers, insulin resistance and radiation effects on space station crew. Other biological science experiments will be looking at the effects of spaceflight on the function of antibody production and immune system memory. Also aboard Cygnus is a new free-flying robot called Astro-B. Astro-B will develop and test technologies for use in microgravity, giving astronauts a hand with routine chores and providing additional eyes and ears for mission managers on the ground. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. In a test which has opened a Pandora's box of ethical issues, scientists have restored some functions in the brains of pigs four hours after they were killed. Using a system that mimics blood flow, scientists ran experiments on the brains of 32 decapitated pigs and successfully restored cellular functions, including the intake of oxygen and nutrients and the removal of carbon dioxide and waste products from the pig's brain cells. The experiment also saw the restoration of synaptic activity, with neurons firing and communicating with other neurons in the brain. Researchers say there was no restoration of full brain activity or function, but admit they didn't test for it and that the chemicals administered should have restricted such an event from occurring. The authors say they can't be sure if further experimentation would have restored self-awareness and thought to the hapless animals, and admit that raises serious ethical questions about whether they could have felt distress or pain. The findings challenge the long-held perception that mammal brains are damaged beyond repair within minutes once the body's heart stops beating. The study raises serious questions about possible implications for organ transplants, as well as ethical quandaries on animal use. You can read all about the disturbing study and the commentary in the journal Nature. A new study warns that even moderate meat-eaters have an increased risk of bowel cancer. Official Australian health guidelines recommend no more than 455 grams of cooked red meat per week. But the new findings reported in the International Journal of Epidemiology say that's still enough to increase your risk of bowel cancer. The study, based on over 2,600 cases of colorectal cancer in the UK, found that people who ate an average of just 76 grams of red and processed meat every day had a 17% higher risk of bowel cancer than those who ate under 21 grams per day. Alcohol was also linked to an increased risk of bowel cancer, while fibre from bread and cereals was linked to a decreased risk. It's been revealed that some 7.6% of boys have had sex before the age of 13. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, involved nearly 20,000 male high school students. Researchers found the proportions varied from region to region and state to state, which is 5% of 13-year-old boys having lost their virginity in San Francisco, compared to 25% in Memphis. The rates were generally higher amongst black and Hispanic boys in most areas compared to Caucasians. The study also found that 8% of boys who lost their virginity before the age of 13 reported the experience was unwanted, while 37% said they had mixed feelings about it. A new study has found the Arctic is now the warmest it's been in 10,000 years and the temperature is still climbing. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Communications, says permafrost samples suggest the Arctic is 2 degrees Celsius warmer now than previous record highs thousands of years ago. 
Researchers studied permafrost samples from the Yukon near the Dempster Highway and determined that temperatures recorded now are even higher than what they were during the previous highs believed to have occurred during the Holocene period some 9,900 to 6,400 years ago. That's a time when the Earth's axis was tilted more strongly towards the Sun. Archaeologists have unearthed a 2,000-year-old Jewish settlement in the Negev Desert in southern Israel. The dig site contains hidden underground passageways used by ancient Hebrew rebels in their fight against Roman invaders. Archaeologists also unearthed a magnificent nine-branched menorah oil lamp, as well as baking ovens, underground storage chambers, and ritual baths and stone vessels associated with Jewish purity laws. Scientists have found that just 10% of Australian drinkers account for more than half of all the country's alcohol consumption. The findings, reported in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health, used data from the 2016 National Drug Strategy Household Survey and the 2013 International Alcohol Control Study in order to examine the characteristics of the heaviest drinkers in the country. They found 10% of the population drinks 50.4% of all the alcohol consumed. And the heaviest drinkers were mainly men living in remote and regional areas who tended to drink full-strength beers and cheaper alcohol. Measles cases have now hit a five-year high in Australia and have jumped globally by some 300%. Nationally in Australia, there have been some 94 confirmed cases of measles so far this year. That compares to 103 cases for the whole of 2018 and 81 cases for the whole of 2017. Five years ago, Australia was declared measles-free and high vaccination rates meant the virus had been largely contained. But the measles situation is even worse in Europe right now, where there have been 83,000 infections and 72 fatalities. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says anti-vaxxers are being blamed for the growing problem and are being widely accused as scientifically illiterate. There's been a major increase in measles cases in Europe, for instance. It's tripled over the last couple of years. And, of course, the number of deaths has increased as well. In the Philippines, for instance, there's recently been 130 people died. In Madagascar, there's been more than 900 deaths. Now, this is from a disease which 10 years ago, medical authorities had hoped would have been wiped out by now. Well, the shadow of Andrew Wade Field can be focused on for cases in Europe. Is, would that also apply to cases in the Philippines and Madagascar and third world countries like that? Possibly not Wakefield himself, but certainly the message is, yes, that, that, that message of anti-vaccination is, it has spread throughout the world and specific cases obviously with the MMR vaccine and fears about autism, etc. associated with vaccines, that's spread pretty far wide around the world. So Wakefield, perhaps not himself, but certainly the message has had a big impact and as we said, sort of they hope measles would have been wiped out by now, but uh, uh, it's not the case unfortunately it's gone the other way. The World Health Organization regards uh, vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 health threats to the world at the moment and that's something that they see as a major issue obviously in maintaining world health. So in other words the vaccines are there but people have heard worried about the side effects of them and are therefore not taking up the vaccine. It happens obviously in Australia there's a lot of people who don't vaccinate in Australia and around the rest of the world too and unfortunately because of the spreading of false news and false information on vaccines fear mongering spreads far and wide. And that's why we have this problem now, people dying. Once upon a time, the head of the Australian anti-vaccination network said nobody ever died of measles. Well, all she had to do was look at the figures to know that uh, she's not correct. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, 
from spacetimewithstuartgary.com or from your favorite podcast download provider. Spacetimes also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Spacetime, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 